how do you base your model? I'm assuming it's the levers that you have as a firm. You have to buy the house at a good price. You know what you're underwriting them for. So I, I'd imagine that cash flow is less of an issue to predict because there's an undersupply of Section 8 housing and you know you're going to get a guaranteed payment. So the cash flow piece feels pretty stable. You're basically betting on the appreciation that a given market will have over the time span, let's call it the seven years or 10 years that you're you're running the investment. Are there any other levers that, that you have to pull? So I mean, like, it's really easy to identify if we wanna go dig in further due diligence wise on a house, right? And kind of what you said is acquisition price, okay, how many bedrooms, right? But then we do take into account what's the capex. We are not fix and flippers. We really want to stay away from that. We buy from a lot of fix and flippers, but you know we want to see that the capex is at a minimum. Okay, welcome to another episode of the Legacy Wealth Podcast, where we help accredited business owners get educated and get access to the world of private investments to build their legacy. I'm your host, Pascal Wagner, here with my co-host, Mike Klein. And today we are interviewing interviewing Alicia Miller Yoder. Hi. So just to give a little bit of background on Alicia, she's the vice president of capital markets and investor relations at Whitestone and co a real estate investment firm headquartered in Denver, Colorado. Their strategy is to purchase single family rentals across the Midwest with a focus on putting in section eight tenants since founding in 2011 or in 2021. Whitestone has over $250 million in assets under management over three different funds with a target IRR of 24%. And today, if you want to participate in any of their offerings, their minimum check size is a hundred grand as a new investor. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah. So one of the first things that we like to do when we talk to a fund manager is just help us get an understanding of what does success look like in this asset class? If we were going to you know, knock it out of the park, what does that look like? I mean, success in a real estate asset class is always about stabilization. And then obviously at what cap rate you're buying in and what you can exit at, right? But stabilization piece is the biggest, meaning, you know, our tenants go into lease into effect and we're getting X, Y, and Z distribution out to our investors. So when we talk about real estate in general, yeah. Not financial advice, but how do you think about it in somebody's portfolio that might be interested in investing? Yeah, so I mean, we're a great diversifier. So one, we're an alternative, right? So from a portfolio perspective, we're that alternative piece. Now, if they're already invested in real estate, we're a great diversifier across real estate. Typically, your traditional real estate asset class are hospitality, multifamily, or industrial. Mm -hmm. Single family rentals is this new asset class that really started to make some headways in 2021, I would say. And it's now becoming more institutionalized. So we're that great diversifier across somebody's portfolio who maybe has something of the other, right? Or if they're in single family rentals, they're probably in the class A space, whereas we focus on class C. So I always say like the multifamily space, everybody focus on class A development. And then all of a sudden, you know, workforce housing became the best thing since sliced bread, right? So we're that great diversifier across the portfolio on the real estate spectrum. So let's add a little context there. When you say, like, let's go real high level. When yeah. you say alternative, what is an alternative and what's the advantage of that? Alternatives are anything that's non, non-correlated to the stock market. You could say some are correlated, but it's anything that's not on the stock market for the most part, right? So that's oil and gas, that's minerals, that's gold, that's crypto, that's 
that's a whole gamut of what's not traditionally on the NASDAQ. Sure. And the advantages? I, I mean, there's a ton of advantages. I love real estate. So the advantage is it's a tangible asset. So you can actually see it, touch it, feel it. There's an address. You're not investing in what I think is like kind of this make-believe world of like, how did I just drop like $20? <laughs> like, who did that? And so, and then also just the fact that, you know, you have a better understanding of the whole financial stack, right? I bought a house for this much. I'm renting it for this much. I'm making this much return. It's a little bit simplified if you ask me. Mm -hmm. So in terms of in your portfolio, the advantage is that you get diversification, which means it's not specifically correlated to the stock market. So stock market goes down, maybe you go down a little less or stock market goes up, maybe you go down even a little or up a little more. Like mm -hmm. it's not the same as investing in the stock market. or unrelated at all. I, I mean, the basic rule of thumb is especially when it comes to our specific asset classes, people need a house to live in, right? So there's always that need. And so in that sense, it's non-correlated, especially if it's rents, because your lease is for a year. Sure. Right? So my my lease isn't is it correlated or tied to the stock market. It's not down $50 this month. It's not up $100 next month mm. for the year. It's consistent. Isn't. Yeah. And you mentioned class A and class B. Walk us through what that means. So class A, class B, class C, and class D are the common terms in real estate. And they have a number of factors. Class A is going to be, you know, your high rise building or your, you know, uh, you know, very nice brand new house, right? In a great school district that's inclined to, you know, fit 10% you know, of the population or something like that, right? Within this threshold. Class B is just a little lower than that, you know, maybe an older home, but still in a good neighborhood. Class C is where we focus, where inner city urban core, the neighborhoods are a little rougher. Usually those are those neighborhoods that are waiting to get gentrified. So we live in Denver. So think of like Rhino or Five Points, you know, five years ago or 10 years ago. And then class D is trailer park. Mm. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And why do you, let's talk about the, like, how does that serve a purpose? What's the benefit of investing in class C and what is its importance and in having investors in that asset class? It comes down to price uh, for a lot of it. I mean, the reason why we're inclined to class C is one, we can buy a house for relatively inexpensive and get attractive rents now. And there's less overhead maintenance, right? So when you have a class C tenant, you don't have to necessarily have a brand new oven a stainless steel this, stainless steel that, quartz countertops. It doesn't have to be in amazing condition. It needs to be working condition, a safe place, right? But it doesn't have to be what maybe I expected my own personal residence mm -hmm. versus class A, which, you know, class A, depending on the market, you could be, it could be anywhere from a, you know, $250,000 house to a million plus, just obviously markets vary. But I don't know that your rent is going to necessarily be the same. I know for an $80,000 house, I can get 1200 for rent versus that class A house that I bought for 300,000, maybe I'm only getting 2400 for rent. Mm. Like the numbers end up, and people are always comfortable with what they're comfortable with. And I understand that. But for me and my background, I like class C. It's less overhead maintenance, less odd hands in the sense of what's required. I think your class A tenants are gonna ask you to change a light bulb, right? Or C to the change their life. Yeah, I mean, to kind of add on to that, so I buy single family homes and rent them by the room. I have 12 of those homes. I call it co-living. And same thing, I call them kind of class C because they're in the outer skirts of the city. You're, you have to have working things, but not new, exactly as you mentioned. And 
I think the reason why I like it so much is that in times of economic recession or depression, people aren't running around trying to, you know, rent these class A apartment buildings in times like this, they're trying to reduce their rental rates. And so, and how much they're paying each month. And so everything actually compresses a little bit. There's, there's maybe less demand for the class A and actually more demand happens in these class C units. So, so in my argument, how I, I built my portfolio with this in mind with the recession that I saw coming is that you want to be in an asset class where people are flocking to not moving away from. And that's, that's why, you know, I think why class C is attractive. So these people need to live somebody. So there's a benefit to society to supporting that. Absolutely. I mean, there's definitely a need for people who fall within a certain threshold. 66% of the population really is in the class C housing sector versus you look at class A or class B, which is a much smaller population. And with median, you know, the price of the wages not going up and not necessarily dictating, I mean, Denver, like we are not caught up with where the housing prices are, right? That also plays into effect. So a lot of people can't afford what maybe they grew up in. Right. Makes sense. So as an LP that invests in the asset class of single family homes in general, there are a, a lot of nuances that are very different than investing in any other kind of asset class. So for example, in multifamily and mobile home parks and and pretty much any kind of commercial real estate, you can get commercial real estate loans. You can get, you know, the way that the portfolio is valued is based on the amount of rent that you're able, the, the, the NOI, the net operating income. You can't do that in single family, as far as I know. So maybe let's talk about that a little bit. Like what are some of the pros and some of the cons of investing in single family as opposed to any other real estate asset? So this is something we didn't expect because the firm I work for and me and my team worked together before we started this firm, we we had focused on multifamily medical office hospitality industrial before we went family. And we didn't think debt was going to be an issue, but the agencies do not service scattered site single family rentals. They will do build for rents because that's a closed confined community if it's like a purpose built community. But they don't, Freddie and Fannie do not serve a single family rental. And Fannie and Freddie are the mortgage agencies that buy up uh, all the loans for mortgages. And, and built for rent, just I like to always for the audience, yep. built for rent means what and then how are you guys different? So unlike, so built for rent, so think about like a new subdivision that's going up in a neighborhood, right? Typically, we've always seen those as homes that people are going to buy. Now they're building subdivisions where people, it's its purpose is just to rent. Mm. And that, I would argue, is a class A asset because they are brand new. And right. so they're building them for the purpose to rent, never to sell. And you guys are different in the sense of? We're already buying existing real estate. Right. And typically we buy from mom and pop landlords and, and we're the, we acquire homes that are 1950s and up, right? So it, it's different. We're not purpose-driven, built, we're not in the development side at all. And you're saying it's a little harder to get debt financing yeah, for that? Yeah, so we use two lenders. We use Kiavi, which used to be Lending Home, and Corvest. They're the largest in single-family rentals, but we still face a lot of hurdles, right? So, for instance, we can close on 100 homes a month, right, in one of our markets. Imagine, first of all, one of those doing 100. Now you have to have individual appraisals for every single home. Yep. 
So we were lucky that we can get a desktop appraisal with PLV or Corvest that can help us close, but then we have to do an individual appraisal. That is a coordination nightmare. And then from their underwriting team, that's a lot of underwriters, right? The system can fall down. And so we have to ease into that system. But there's no other lenders really out there. Like when you talk to banks, they really only, only understand an individual owning five homes, right? Your personal residence and some vacation home. They don't see it as this big global, a new asset class type, right? However, when I was at that IMN conference, I did out because of the agency because within our model, we, we service Section 8 and HUD wrote the program. Why don't they service the loans? And Fannie, there were a number of Fannie uh, Mae people there and we had a meeting with them. They are trying to figure out how to solve it. I don't think there's an urgency. I think there needs to be an urgency because they're still figuring it out, but they know they need to. Who knows when? Yeah. And when you talk, you said mentioned desktop appraisals. What does that mean? So basically you're just saying what the, the, the market value is based on like a Zillow or something like that. Right. So like just looking online, what does the, the appraisal look good for? And then we'll do a traditional appraisal after you close yep. versus typically when you buy, you have to have a traditional appraisal done by a third party, right. That the bank organizes organizes to close. And I think we're naturally moving into the part where we talk about, you know, how do the experts do it and how do you think about investing at scale? And so what are the disadvantages of, if you can't do that desktop appraisal? Timed becomes cumbersome, right? right? Time kills deals, right? And if you're also trying to close on a hundred, now you have to organize a hundred appraisals day one. We at least have some flexibility because we use that desktop appraisal and that bridged close within Kiavi and Corvus. We have some time to space out those final appraisals, right? For when we when we move to a permanent facility. If I have to do a hundred traditional pre appraisals day one, that's a nightmare. So it, get, it, get so it gets competitive, is it's what you're saying? It's not even competitive. It's, there's not enough people to do it and it mm -hmm. will close in time. So I, I don't know that it's necessarily competitive because the land landscape is a little bit different today. A lot There's not as many buyers, right? But it's just hard to close because you don't have the underwriters and the support that you need to close within 30, 60, 90 days. And you have to close within that time frame. I mean, our, our motto is we close with it 30 days. Right. And sometimes it's up to 60, most parts, 30 to 60 days. Right. So I think, so one of the things I'm thinking about is like, okay, I'm, I'm an, I'm an investor and I'm excited to have you here today. Cause I want to learn more about how you think about this asset class. What, what, why would I choose to go into single family over any other type of commercial real estate? The easiest selling point is we're the only real estate firm buying at 12 calves because the financial returns are so much greater than what the other alternatives or other real estate alternatives are offering today. The market has changed, right? So multifamily used to be really great. Now you look at all the multifamily operators today who are doing the exact same thing they were doing for the past 10 years, which was very lucrative, but they have not pivoted, right? They're buying at three and a half caps. Debt is at what? So so, so for, for, for new listeners, cap rate, a cap rate is capitalization rate, and it's the amount of revenue that a property will produce based on the total value of the asset. So if you have a $100,000 asset and it generates $3,000 a year, that would be a three cap. Just You also need to base that cap rate against what debt terms you're getting. So if I have a three and a half cap and I'm getting debt at 7%, I'm losing money. Right. I'm in the negatives. And unfortunately, there's a lot of operators today who are doing that. Or if I'm at a five cap and I have 6% interest, 
that's very like i mean it's still negative or five percent interest the margin like mm -hmm. you're you're risking a lot we like to have more cushions <laughs> right because there's so many things that will go wrong with an investment it's in a it's inevitable it's people right you have tenants in your home so you have to ha account for that cushion in there that something will go wrong so that our finance financial support can cover it right our our winging our capex or you know can cover those expenditures so so to to help me understand your model is specifically you're going in and you're buying single family homes and you're putting a tenant into them and when you buy them they at the time of purchase the standard rent is a is a 12 like they generate at 12 cap at twelve thousand dollars a year per hundred it varies we really base that off of stabilization and the reason why we can be confident in what we're saying the cap rate is and i I'll, I'll you know i always say 12 cap i mean it ranges from an eight cap to sometimes ridiculous cap rates like 18 cap right like every because it's individual homes every individual home is different and every market is different right so i think uh, like where i'm where i'm getting at here is is uh oh but it's when it's stabilized so so because we do section eight so every single year, the government lists what the bare minimum rent for Section 8 can be. Ooh. So I know what a one-bedroom through a five-bedroom should rent for in that market. So in my underwriting, I know if I bought this house for 75000 the three-bedroom house in Kansas City, three bedrooms rent for 1364 I can quickly do that calculation. And the thir and 1364 is what the housing of... The, the housing authority. The housing authority says the minimum is, and they help pay that rent to you. So actually, the the customer is the tenant, but the payer is actually the government in your case. Yes. Yeah, so government, the program's been around for since the 1970s, and it's not going anywhere. It's it's a bipartisan issue. It's political loser. Any administration gets rid of it. You can't get get a you know people need a place to live. That's a, that's a losing subject. But they'll pay anywhere from 70 to 100% of the rent, given what financial threshold, how much money you make, and how many dependents, how many children you have. And based on that, they base how many bedrooms you should have. And like a nuance of that is like, you now only have two of the same sex children in a room. You have three boys in a room. You can have two boys in a room, right? And you can have a boy and a girl in a room. So if I have a, if it's me and I make this much money and I have a daughter and a son, I need a three bedroom house, mm. right? And so they're going to base it off of, also what that is. And then within that, they're going to say, okay, I'm going to give you 70% of what that rent is, or I'm going to give you 90%. Just kidding. Got it. And, and that's, that's section eight. That is section eight, a piece, a factor of section eight. And to give you an idea that annual income for somebody who's on section eight annually across the nation is 15,000 a year. Wow. So, so if you're on section eight housing, you're making an average 15 K a year. Yes. Crazy. So with, when you buy these single family homes, is your return primarily based on the, am I buying this as part of into your fund or into this asset for cash flow specifically? Or, you know, cause what I think about is in, in, when you invest in a multifamily or a, a self storage or, or any kind of other commercial real estate, when they increase the, the net operating income, Basically, when they increase how much the the business or the asset makes, that the value of that business goes up. And so when you sell it, that that's a way you can force appreciation. From my understanding, you can't do that in the single family space. 
It's basically all driven by market supply and demand of how many people want or don't want single family homes. So as an individual investor, maybe, but with our fund model, I'd say that's incorrect. So one, investors in real estate, especially our, our asset class, they like getting that quarterly distribution. They like the cash yield, but there is a huge exit. And so we're building this for consolidation, aggregation, and an exit. And we know that those numbers exist. So again, I say we're buying at 12 caps. Blackstone bought Home Partners of America in June of 2022. Home Partners of America had 17,000 homes. Their model was a little bit different, but similar to ours. They did rent to own rather than just rent, but it was about numbers. They wanted to buy into a portfolio where it was already stabilized, where they already have the homes, et cetera, right? And they bought that at a three and a half cap. So we know there's going to be cap rate compression in our favor when we bundle all of our funds into one and look so, for it. So it's just to make it stupidly simple. So basically what you're saying is, you know, your portfolio, let's say generates $10,000 for every hundred K in uh 10 cap. And the institution is going to come in and purchase your fund, a portfolio of a thousand, you know, whatever number of homes because they can buy that in one transaction super easily and they're willing to take a huge haircut off of the cash flow or off the return profile by paying a higher dollar amount to do that in one transaction. Exactly what they do in all the other real estate asset classes too. They want to buy something that's already the bow on top tied pretty. They don't do the hard work. It is a lot of hard work. This the fact, I mean, the acquisitions I would argue is easy, but you have to go out and do it. It's we don't buy big portfolios because they don't exist. This is a new asset class. Only 2% of single family rentals are institutionally owned. And so we buy onesie, twosies, 20 home portfolios, and then we have to stabilize. We have to get in a good tenant base because let's face it, some of the tenants that we inherit aren't the best. Totally. (laughs) And so they're willing to take a haircut on price because they don't want to do the heavy lifting. They'd rather buy 10,000 homes ready to go rather than go source it themselves. So- Going high level, the, the pitch is kind of, this is a really attractive asset class. You get diversification. There's some government subsidies that allow it to be even more attractive. The end goal for your fund and strategy specifically is to acquire a bunch of homes, as build a portfolio, and then get that acquired. What does the acquirer look for when making that decision? That's a great question. And I would say our exit is either selling as a private REIT to a KKR, Blackstone, a Carlisle, what have you, but we can also go public as a REIT. And we think all suited for the marketplace as well. So, I mean, what the acquirer is going to look for is number of homes, quality of the homes, right? I think that need a lot of work. Right. And then the stabilization of the tenant base, right? So they want to make sure that there are leases in effect and what makes Section 8 so attractive well, two things. One, Section 8 tenants stay on average for seven years or 10 years if they're elderly. There's very little turnover. However, if we ever had an institution that wanted to buy us and doesn't like Section 8, the lease is only for a year. So if they wanted to transition it, not that we favor that, they could definitely have that option. Got it. So they're looking essentially for that you've come in flushed out the bad actors or the yeah. bad renters, and there's a track record that signifies consistency and predictability. Yes, exactly. Cool. Yeah, that's very um, helpful. If somebody said, I want to get into doing this myself, 
versus investing in a professional that does it. What advice or picture could you paint of what they would be signing up for? I mean, I do it myself. My family does it themselves. So, I mean, anybody, I, I encourage everybody to do it themselves. It's a great investment opportunity. I would say identify a market. You know, I buy primarily in Columbus, Ohio, which is one of the funds markets. And my husband's from Ohio. So I'm familiar with that market. I do have a rental in Denver, but start looking, right? Just start looking, understand what it takes. I think there's a lot of helpful books out there. There's a lot of podcasts, but I not going to learn until you actually just buy it. Yeah. So one of the things I, I think moreover, the, the, uh, we encourage people not to do it themselves. Oh. So, uh, <laughs> so let's start, let's, well, let's, go, you know, I, I would say that we encourage people to really understand what they're signed up for. So to differentiate somebody that has an idea, I'd love to do real estate versus what it's actually like to do it at a professional level. I think here's the difference, right? I think you can do it yourself. Just understand you're not going to have the aggressive returns when you partner with an institution. When you invest with an institution, you immediately have access to, like, for instance, my firm has 2,000 homes today, right? You immediately have access to 2,000 homes. If you were to go do that yourself, that's going to take you decades as an individual. Yeah, but someone might say like, hey, you know, I'm going to go buy 10 homes themselves and and just do it on their own. I, you know, the pitch, I mean, somewhat to tee you up a little bit, right? It's like, <laughs> it's like, look, I, I mean, I have this point of view that, look, if you are a working professional and you, let's say you are at a tech job or you run your own business, right? And for you to go out and listen to this podcast and you hear that Section 8 housing is the shit and... I need to start buying single family homes and putting tenants into them. I would argue that that is the wrong mindset to have because you make much more money focusing on your area of expertise and your zone of genius and then partnering with a professional to to go through and deploy your capital. And you don't have to go through all of those same like learning curves, hurdles, figuring out who your lending partner is, negotiating lease term, you know, so what is what does a professional do or yeah what does a professional do that a that a individual investor just getting into the space would not know or have the advantage of well immediately the housing authority relationships if you specifically wanted a section 8 tenant building those relationships with the housing authority can be cumbersome and difficult so for instance, when we identify a house and we acquire a home and we want to transition it to the Section 8 program, which bear in mind, anything from a mobile home to a mansion can qualify for Section 8. You have to notify the housing authority. They then have to do an inspection. First of all, now you need to know, how am I going to pass this inspection? Because chip paint will fail. Non-grounded outlets will fail, right? So there's a lot of nuances and every market's a little different. So you only get three opportunities to pass. So say I failed the first one. And this is also why it's really hard for individuals to become landlords. So I've acquired a house. I failed my first inspection. It took two weeks for them to show up. Okay. Now I'm waiting another two weeks. I passed the second one, right? Okay. Now I have a tenant move into the home, right? I get approved. I have the Section 8 tenant. Well, the government takes about 90 days to catch up on payment. So yes, they came full, but now I'm out four months of rent as an individual landlord. That is really hard for me to sustain if I have other things I'm tending to. If I have a family, if I have a full-time job, how am I going to cover the mortgage for this when I'm out of rent for four months? Mm. 
So by default, that's why you don't see a lot of landlords choosing to go to Section 8 because the program can be cumbersome. But like an institution like us, we have direct lines of communication that we've developed and we've built up with the housing authority where one, we pass our inspections right away. We know exactly what they're looking for. Two, we can cover within that four month time frame or three month time frame of, of not getting payment because we're a big fund. And then three, you know, we now have that communication where it doesn't take two weeks for an inspection. It takes a day. Got and, it. And just to recap, I think we hedged around. I don't know if we said it directly. The advantage of Section 8 is that you don't have to worry about your tenant not paying. Exactly. So delinquency is is few and far between. So the reason why we got into Section 8, and before we institutionalized the firm, we were doing this, this in the background in 2020. And it was 2020. Eviction moratoriums were real. We, as you know, investors, wanted to ensure that our idea worked and we got paid rent. So we went Section 8. What we like about Section 8 are a lot of the economics. On average, it takes two years for an individual to get approved for a housing voucher. Every city is different. LA County is 11 years. You're never getting it. But on average, it's two years. Once somebody gets approved and they say, we're going to give you this much money, they have 180 days to find a house. One out of four families actually find a home because there's lack of inventory. Once they're in that home, they now have to keep up with the exterior of the home, the interior of the home, and they cannot be disruptive in the neighborhood. If they don't follow the rules, they not only risk getting evicted from the home that took two years to get into, they risk losing their voucher, which took two years to get. So there's a lot on the line incentivizing that they're good tenants. The government pays us directly their portion, but they're incentivized to pay that other portion because they could lose it and they could go somewhere else and obviously not get approved for a housing voucher. They lose the housing voucher program, et cetera. We favor it because there's a lot on the line. And then what a lot of people don't know is we're across the Midwest. We like those numbers and we're not in the middle of nowhere. We're in cities that are at least a million population, economic drivers, corporate campuses, universities, et cetera, right? People have to live there. But what we like is, I was like, oh, I, I keep losing my Hey, good. No. <laughs> you know, one of the questions I, I'm now, this is just really fascinating to me because as an investor, you know, I've heard people talk about Section 8 housing. I've heard pros and cons, you know, hey, that it's it's not the easiest type of tenant to deal with. And also that, you know, it's great when that the government pays everything. G give me like some, like, I'd love to understand, you know, you make it sound rosy. I imagine it's not all rosy. G help us understand that. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of biases out there. So one thing I love about the fact that we do Section 8 on our single family rentals versus like a multifamily is nobody knows they're sectioning. When you build up an affordable housing multifamily, you know, that's a project space, a light tech base, or, you know, affordable housing, right? So one, you eliminate a little bit of that riffraff right there. And then two, you know, it's really sad to say, but what we, we've come across in this industry is there's a lot of racism associated with our tenant base. So from, from New York firms, institutional firms, some Denver institutional firms, they have expressed that they don't like that tenant asset class type, right? And that's unfortunate. What we've discovered is we like our Section 8 tenants. Yes, it's not all rosy. You have to deal with the government and it can become cumbersome, right? You have to deal with some loopholes and some hurdles, but they don't really want you to bug them once they're in the home. So, so it's really not, you know, you know, a lot about when you think about investing in a 
let's like call it a lower class, a class C affordable housing. There's more riffraff. There's more that you have cumbersome tenants and issues. Is that is not not the case with you guys? Now, for the most part, because we do an additional back. So we treat them like market rate tenants. So we do an additional background check. So we run it like just a regular tenant base, right? The market rate tenant. So make sure that nothing, no crime or felonies or anything like that come up. So we're also gentrifying the neighborhood, putting in a better tenant base. And then, you know, there's so many nonprofit programs that come in and assist. So like for 2020 eviction moratoriums, right? Tenants, Section 8 tenants that were having a hard time, Salvation Army stepped up and paid three months of back rent and three months of board rent in order for us to melt it. Wow. And there's multiple, multiple, multiple programs like that that a lot of our tenants have access. There's also a program called Rhino. So a lot of tenants don't have like the down deposit for, for rent. There's a program called Rhino and they can pay like five or $10 a month. Rhino will pay it in full to us, but they're paying it monthly right back to Rhino for that deposit. So there's a lot of programs that help to make sure we as a landlord are whole. Got it. So what is the, how do you base your model? I'm assuming, I'm assuming it's, you know, the levers that you have as a firm are that you have to buy the house at a good price. Uh, you then, you know what you're underwriting them for. So I, I'd imagine that cash flow is less of an issue to predict because there's an undersupply of Section 8 housing and you know you're going to get a guaranteed payment. So the cash flow piece feels pretty stable. And then you're basically betting on the appreciation that a given market will have over the time span, let's call it the seven years or 10 years that you're, you're running the investment. Are there any other levers that, that you have to pull? So, I mean, like, it's really easy to identify if we want to go dig in further due diligence wise on a house, right? And kind of what you said is acquisition price. Okay. How many bedrooms, right? But then we do take into account what's the CapEx. We are not fix up flippers. We really want to stay away from that. We buy from a lot of fix and flippers, but you know, we want to see that the CapEx is at a minimum. Now, certain things you... And, and just to, to highlight, CapEx means capital expenditures, basically the amount of money you put into renovating the home. Thanks. I didn't really... No, I'm, I'm just trying to be a super... <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. Keep going. I'm going to keep breaking them down. No, it's great. And some of that CapEx we write up front. So for instance, I'm buying an $80,000 house, but I know it needs a new roof. So I may put some of that CapEx up front. Okay, does it make sense for buying a $90,000 house saying that roof is going to be 10,000 bucks? Okay, yes. And our basic rule of thumb is that 1%. So if I buy a house for 100,000, it needs a rent for 1,000 a month. And we have certain due diligence protocols. Once we close, we have six eyes that walk the property because we know we can miss something. Broker walks the property, property management walks the property, roof, HVAC, which person walks the property and we get an inspection report in hand, red front to back. And from there, when we decide if we're going to buy a house, we read the inspection report. We ask for a credit because some stuff we found. All right. We pass because we're not emotional buyers. There's tons of inventory in our markets for what we're doing. Or we ask for a haircut. Right. So, or it's good to go. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, or it's good to go. We buy it. <laughs> So, so you're like, how many deals are you looking at? What, what is, you know, what is your ideal home look like? Our ideal home is think of like an area that's being gentrified. We're two miles outside of it. So we're always inner city urban core. It's probably a 1960s house, right? Three bedroom. It doesn't matter how many bathrooms. 
it's only section eight rents are only depicted on bedroom no other amenities make it better garage no garage nothing right so typically our homes are like two three four bedrooms with one one or two baths right and then from there just making sure the quality it's not a thick total fixer upper we want to make sure it's somewhat moving ready our biggest expenditures are paint and lvp luxury vinyl plank right the fake wood <laughs> the LVP luxury vinyl. So if you're sold on real estate, you're sold on this specific section of real estate and you're sold on not doing it yourself. Why your guys' firm? We're the only ones doing this strategy out there. And then why our firm is the proof is in the pudding. I mean, we are able to prove that we've been buying, you know, thousands of single family rentals across our market. Obviously, I think our cap rates are very attractive. That 12 cap, I haven't seen any other firm in the space uh, providing that. And then I, it's an asset class that's going to be here for a while and we're here first. So within a year of starting single family rentals, we were a top 20 owner and operator, which should never happen in any type of investment asset class, but that's where the opportunity is. And then from the firm perspective, I think we as individuals, who represent the firm have a lot of experience and we've worked together as a team before and we're all in on this strategy. My background, I've seen it work for decades with my own family that invests in class C. So really, and then, you know, I'm investor relations from the investor side is I really do care about the people who invest with us. I talk to them all the time. They can call me on my cell phone anytime. And there's no stupid questions because everybody's looking to learn. And I learned every single day. Totally. Any, anything you think that's worth highlighting that we haven't covered? I mean, like, is there, like, is there anything in your pitch when you, when you put together these presentation decks and, and share them with your LPs, is there anything that you think we've missed? I mean, I think the thing is why section eight and not a normal market rate tenant, aside from some of the other things that I've mentioned, one section eight, we love that the government's paying us directly, but in our markets of so section eight rent tends to actually be higher than market rate rent which is really nice. And then from a headline risk. So I get asked from institutions and investors all the time, what's the headline risk? We really don't have any headline what risk. Is, what is headline risk? Headline risk is how can this make us as a firm investing in this look bad, mm. right? Um, we are giving somebody a home who otherwise would be on the street in a shelter or in a slum lord's house. Because we have to follow uh, a federal inspection, the housing authority inspection, um, our homes are held to a federal standard. So a lot of our homes are actually nicer than market rate homes because we can't have windows that fall down, right? Sure. Market rate home, you can nail that shut. That will fail for sectioning. It's it's the fact that this is an asset class that isn't going anywhere. Oh, and then headline risk. Sorry, my brain's all over today. But headline risk. We also are the bad landlord raising rents. It's the U.S. government. So every single year, the U.S. government comes in and bases the rent off the fair market rent value and raises rents. Last year, our rents went up over 10%. You make it sound like I want to get into Section 8 housing. <laughs> That's fascinating. What is, what is the typical investor look like with you guys? Oh, God, every investor is so different. And that's why I love my job, because everybody's so different. And Typically somebody who is driven by both wanting that quarterly distribution as well as understanding the exit. My typical investor varies from the accredited investor who is the high net worth individual looking for passive income to the family office that wants to make a larger contribution and they like the space is a great diversifier to an institution who's looking at this from the whole macro perspective of an exit, right? Yeah. Um, 
So it really varies, but I would say if you want that quarterly distribution, passive income, you know it's a steady tenant base, you know it's a tangible asset, this is definitely for you. Real estate is for you as an investor as a whole, but there's a lot more cushion and comfort knowing that when things go wrong, because no matter what, if the firm's been around for 50 years or five years, something's going to go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so there's more cushion securing your investment. Speaking of what can go wrong, so I, I'm just thinking through the risks as as a prospective investor. I imagine it's you're getting paid by the government. There's low low supplies. So I imagine that that will never be an issue. And it's just a matter of you buying right and hoping that the market doesn't crash by 50%. Yes, but I think also because we're buying at what we're buying at, I mean, that's also why we've identified the Midwest, right? We like the Midwest because we can find more attractive purchase prices in the reds match versus the Sun Belt, which is your southern states, or Denver, or the coast, which are California, New York, et cetera. That's much more expensive. And in my idea, that's more risk because you're banking on appreciation. We're just banking on stabilization. The risk with single family rentals as a whole, class A, class B, class C, is management. This is a management intensive business. Property management, we've internalized because we realize nobody's gonna property manage better than we do. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> but that's a lot of hard work. And then your biggest risk is when a home's empty. That's when theft happens. That's when um, something could burn down. That's when squatters come in place. So we try to really speed up that turn turnaround time to make sure that doesn't happen. But there's always variables that could happen. Yeah. Another question, but I think I'll need to save it for another day because I can't remember it. Thank you so much for joining us, Alicia. Yeah, this was awesome. Being on. Yeah. Really appreciate it.